Zakawani, the flying winger. Oh, goodness me! He doesn't need anybody, Steve Zakawani! Steve Zakawani was never fun <laughs> to, to go up against. Was it for Zakawani? None of this is possible. It's Steve! It's Steve! <laughs> this is so weird. Steve Zakawani! What's up, everyone? Steve Zakawani here. Welcome to Winging It with Zakawani. I'm here. I'm in a much better mood than I've been recently. I'm sure most of you are as well. You can relate to that for sure. It was um, not just the fact that the Sounders got a couple of goals, got a pretty positive result considering, but it's the way they played. It's the way the game went. There were so many positives to take from it. And also the negative of dropping two points is actually a good thing. If you you think about, you know, going to the team in first place and dropping two points and feeling bad about it, that's a pretty good sign. We'll get into that. Also on the podcast today, I will have Darren Sawatsky joining me, um, former, you know, soundest player. He's coached the academy, helped bring in a lot of young talent um, that's played for this club and been through here, most notably DeAndre Yedlin. Um, we'll recap the Sporting Kansas City game and then we'll preview the Minnesota game upcoming. And as always, I will leave you with my big three things. But first of all, the thing I want to get to is every time you draw a game, a tie, it either feels like a win or it feels like a defeat. And with this one that happened on Sunday, I'm struggling to figure out which one it feels like. In 2009, we played a game against DC. I believe we were 3-1 up at CenturyLink Field. It was called Questfield at the time. And we ended up drawing the game 3-3. And we got into the changing room after the game. And, you know, Ziggy went off because it felt like a loss. It was one point on the board. We didn't lose. But the coach was pretty pissed. And he went off at us. And it felt like a loss. 2010, at home to Houston, we had 20-plus shots. We played scintillating football. It was a tremendous performance, and we found ourselves 1-0 down at halftime. 81st minute, Eric Freeberg whips in a corner. Whip is being generous. He mishit the corner. The Houston defender at the near post mishit his clearance. The ball fell to me two yards out. I pulled into the back of the net. We celebrated. The game ended. 1-1, we outshot them by 20 or 30 shots, I'm not sure. And it was 1-1, but we felt good. It felt like a win, still, just one point. So draws are funny, draws are weird, because you're never quite sure which way to feel about it. So the one on Sunday in Sporting Kansas City, I'm going to go out and say that this felt like both. You can look at it one way and it can feel like a defeat, And in another very real sense, it feels like a win. I expected a tough game. And it was, but not in the way I thought it would be. The Sounders made it tough on themselves with a couple of errors. You take those errors out of it, and you're walking out of there with three points. So if you look at it immediately, it feels like a loss. You're up 2-1. All you got to do is keep it tight. Osvaldo Alonso's come back. He's starting to bust the midfield like he does. Christian Rodan is flying, he's on fire. Wolverine's doing his job up top. Stefan Fry's done what he does, made a couple good saves. Just see this thing out after Christian's goal. 
and you concede a very, very, very soft goal. It's one thing if Sporting put together 10 passes, a couple of one-twos, combinations, given goals, carved you open and scored. That was a really, really soft goal to give up. So in the immediate aftermath, that feels like a loss. It has to. And that's why Brian Schmetzer said as much. He felt they left two points on the table there and it's two points they should have had. If you look at it in the big picture, it has to feel like a win. You were 0-3 going into that game with no goal scored. 13 points behind Sporting Kansas City. And the fact alone that you can feel bad about a point on the road to that team just shows you what the standards and expectations are around here. They're very, very high. But the team played well. I hate to highlight one or two individuals because it's always a team game, a team effort. But in this situation, we have to. The Rodan brothers, I thought Alex played a really good game. I thought Christian was exceptional, especially when he was moved up into a higher position. More on that later. But if it's even possible to be man of the match in just 20 or 30 minutes, it has to be Osvaldo Alonso. Did you see how calm he was when he came on? Everybody relaxed, took a deep breath when he came on. This is a guy who's been out for months. He looked like he was in mid-season form, and I knew this would happen. When he plays as if he has something to prove or he wants to remind us what he brings, that's the kind of performance he puts in. Within a couple of minutes, he had a couple of interceptions. Every time he got the ball, he was calm and he was spraying passes and finding guys. He freed up Christian Rodin, which I've said Christian is at his best when he's alongside Ozzy in some form or fashion. And we saw that. Christian got high up the pitch and without Clint Dempsey in there, you need more guys getting into the attack. Because Nico gets double teamed every time he gets the ball. So you need other guys willing to make plays. And Christian's goal, what a fantastic finish. It looked easy, I know. That's tough. Hit the ball with your laces that accurately into the bottom corner. It takes tremendous technique and class to pull that off. And he did. So this is a draw that felt like both a win and a defeat. In the immediate aftermath, it was a gut punch. Very sloppy goal to give up. Knew who knows, you've got to get back. We hate tracking back. Everybody hates the idea of having to sprint an extra 20 yards to get back. But that's the difference. That's what it takes. That's the difference between winning and losing. Three points and one point. Winning and drawing. And if Nuhu could have that back, he would make that sprint, rest after. But he'll get better from it. It happens. Everybody's made mistakes. Just unfortunately in this one, the sound has got caught on a soft goal. But the good far outweighs the bad from this past weekend. Brilliant, brilliant from Christian. Brilliant from Osvaldo Alonso when he came on. And brilliant from the team overall. Brian Schmetzer and his coaching staff deserve a ton of credit because they instilled a belief in that team that you can go to the first place team, go toe-to-toe. We are the Seattle Sounders. I don't care what the table says. We're coming in to get three points. Where most coaches may have just played it safe. Let's just get through this week and then reevaluate with our home game next week. He never did that. He went there bold, good game plan, hit them on the counter, were up 2-1, and in the end, very unlucky not to win. Some questions. 
I knew there'd be a lot this week, but it's always much easier to ask you to send in your questions when I know you're going to be in a good mood. So here's, here's one of the questions that came on. It's about a formation, and a question says, what are my thoughts on using a 4-3-3 to get the most out of Rodan, Ozzy, and Gustav Svensson, to play them as the three? My answer, in theory, I like it. In theory. But the problem is, not with that three in the midfield, they'd be fine, it's the three in front. I don't think the soundest, best attacking players line up well in a front three. Because if you have Wilbur in central, you're not talking about having Clint Dempsey on the left and Nico Ladera on the right. Clint Dempsey is no longer an attacking winger. He doesn't do his best work in wide channels at this stage of his career. He needs to be central. Okay, so you put Clint central and you put Will Bruin out wide. It doesn't work. So 4-3-3, yes, it gets Aussie, Christian and Gustav onto the pitch together. But then it dismantles what you want to do further up the pitch. Another question. Do I believe that the scoring floodgates will now open with Dempsey back and be back this weekend and after this last performance? I do believe so. I don't think the team will be shut out three games in a row again. I mean, there's going to be games when you don't score, the ball doesn't go in. But for the most part, you look at what happened on Sunday. Wilburin should have scored and hits the crossbar. And then 30 seconds later, the ball comes right back to him and he finishes it. Fine margins in this sport. Between a goal and not a goal, winning or losing is such fine margins. And more often than not, if you keep creating chances, you'll find yourself on the right side of that margin. And with the quality of Clint Dempsey, Nico seems to be getting back up to speed. Christian's off the mark. We'll see more of Alonso this weekend. You're at home, feeling good. I don't see this team being shut out this weekend. So in that sense, yes, the floodgates should open. Much more to come on Winging It with Zakwani. When we return, I will be joined by Darren Sawatsky. If you follow the Sounders at all, is a guy you'll be very familiar with. He helped mold the academy at this club. One of the guys behind the emergence of a young guy by the name of DeAndre Yedlin, who I'm not happy with right now because he had an assist against my team on Sunday or Saturday. Can't remember, but we'll talk about that and more. Stay tuned. Much more to come on Winging It with Zachary. And welcome back to Winging It with Zakwani. I am very happy to say I'm now joined by a man who has played in my charity game every year. Probably has the goal of the charity game so far, was a quality goal. But also a guy who helped shape um, the culture of the academy here at the Sounders, helped produce a ton of pros. Um, we'll talk to him about that. But also had his own successful career and is still one of the top coaches around. Um, Darren Swarovski, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Dave. It's great to be here, my friend. <laughs> I, the first thing I wanted to ask you was, um, since I've come to Seattle, I've always known your, your involvement or connection with the Sounders. Um, but how did that begin? How did you first get involved working with the Academy for the Sounders? Um, <clears throat> well, my, my love for the Sounders, first of all, starts from way back. You know, my, my uncle Greg, of all people, he uh, took me to my ter- first Sounders game at the Kingdom when I was very young, probably eight years old. Uh, fell in love with it. Um, but... My involvement on a more official level, I played 
You know, I uh, I played in 2000, left for a year to play for the enemy, came back to play for Brian, who uh, is a good friend and a great colleague. Um, when I started to retire, you, you really have three options, right? You can, you can coach, <laughs> you can administrate, or you can go try to do something completely different, right? Which yep. is what you're doing. Good job. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. Um, I, I went the coaching route. <laughs> Um, and I got involved in youth soccer, started to get my licensing and certification, fell in love with it. So the state president at the time and Adrian offered me the opportunity to uh, start the academy. Um, and that first class of academy guys included DeAndre and Darwin. And I mean, it was very, very good. And we had coached them in ODP and all that stuff. So we had a long history with them. So I'm proud of the work that we did to build the academy and what it is today. You, ne- you mentioned some players there, DeAndre, Darwin. There's also Aaron Culver, Sean O'Coley. There was like a burst of guys coming through at that time who've, you know, turned out to be good players. Um, I'll talk about DeAndre in a second, but just as an overall, what was the what was the secret behind that producing so many pretty quality players at that time? Um, you know, I was downstairs talking to Dave Gillett and uh, we were talking about that. And, you know, there were a lot of guys that came and played in the 70s that stuck around. You know, a lot of there's a big English contingent from the, you know, Alan to to Jimmy Gabriel to, to yep. Dave and Bobby and all that. Anyway, they stuck around, which really influenced a lot of the coaching in the area. So you got a guy like DeAndre. He grew up in a club system that had some guys that at least had a history in playing and coaching. Yeah. So when we got him at the ODP level and academy level, they already had a good foundation. So that early group, you know, Bernie had Crossfire and, uh, you know, Jimmy and, and Gary and those guys had Wash Premier. Those kids had already had a lot of really good coaching. So what we did was we just took it up a notch. So the first, the, you know, that group and then the group right behind them with, you know, Jordan Schweitzer and Jordan Morris. We had a really good group of kids who we had actually been coaching on some level or another for five or six years before the academy even started. So it was like hitting the ground running. Andre, good friend of mine, but, uh, and I've told him this as well. I would not have predicted he gets to the level where he's got to. I mean, I just watched him this past weekend have an incredible assist against Arsenal, which is like an amazing thing to see. Um, his growth for me happened after the World Cup. He got so much confidence from that, and he's never come back down. But when you had him as a teenager, even before he went to the University of Akron, um, did you think he could go on to be what he's become? Um, I wouldn't have said that DeAndre would be a right pack playing for Newcastle if you'd yeah. asked me when he was 11, 12 years old. I mean, he's this little kid with an afro running around kicking people. <laughs> he, uh, you know, it was really interesting because, um, you know, the, the the first few years here when I ran the academy, the, you know, Ziggy was here and they were trying so desperately to get the team, you know, to the level they wanted to win an MLS Cup with you guys. And the academy was very secondary. Yeah. You know, DeAndre is the king of taking advantage of an opportunity because I think it was Johansson got yeah. injured and yeah. DeAndre was the only other right back in camp. And I don't think he was even signed yet. No. And he played. And to be honest with you, he hasn't stopped playing yeah. since that day. So, you know, if you would have told me that DeAndre was going to be a right back for Newcastle, I'd have said you were crazy. He, he played as an attacking center mid. Wow. And uh, his U18 season, Dick, Dickie McCormick moved him to right back. And it took a little while for him to adjust to, to yeah. defending all the time. But he's been great. Yeah, he really has been. Um, let's talk about your playing career. Uh, I don't think many people would know that you were involved with... I mean, you just showed me a backpack from MLS Combine <laughs> from the <laughs> mid-90s. So yeah. talk a little bit about your own playing career, um, the clubs you played for, the league, and all, all that stuff. You know, I I was very fortunate. You know, uh, uh, Wade Weber, who is here and, yeah. and is a wonderful guy, very intelligent. Wade came back to coach my high school soccer team when he was 23 from the University of Portland and he opened my eyes. 
He, uh, that summer I went to Europe, I got to train in Holland and, and it just, nowadays everybody says that that yeah. was an anomaly back then. Right. Anyway, um, my career wouldn't have been anything without Clive Charles because I wasn't the most talented soccer player, but I worked very, very hard. Um, <clears throat> playing for Clive, uh, opened the doors to when major league soccer came around. So the end of my senior year of college at the university of Portland, I went to Mexico. I was down playing with Unam and Leon. Wow. And by playing, I was trialing <laughs> like crazy trying to, to get in a, in a game. But when the, when the league formed, um, after the world cup, they were going to launch in 95 and they stalled it for a year. So I was down bouncing around Mexico for 95. Hmm. Um, they had this huge combine to find all the best players in the country. Well, there was like 1,500 guys that went through this combine, and they, they gave us all this, the, all this this backpack, the 1996 combine backpack. Well, my wife found it in a box last night, so I brought it here to show this guy. I wonder how many of those exist anymore. Yeah. But, um, 150 Americans got drafted out of that 1,500, and then they filled it out with foreign guys. So I'm lucky to be one of those first guys in the draft and started MLS, played in the first year, two, three, four years. So. What was the level of the, of the play back then? You know, it's really interesting. I think there's a lot more quality players now Mm -hmm. than there were then. But the starting 11s plus one or two, I mean, Roberto Donadoni, Lothar Mateus. I mean, the the guys that played in the league, Giuseppe Galderisi, Joe McMoore, all of the... I played with some good players. And, you know, people always say, oh, the league's so much better now. And it it was poor back then. You know, some of us were hard workers for good players. Right. But the league level was very good that first two years. What do you think, a um, couple of questions more for you. What do you think right now, the state, here in Washington, but also nationally, of youth soccer in general? Kind of when you look at youth soccer, what do you think? Are, are you optimistic? Are you, what, what's your thoughts on it in general? Um, that's a can of worms. Yeah. Uh, that's a whole podcast. Um, mm-hmm. I think everybody has the right intentions. But I think that a lot of people think they know and don't necessarily know. And I'm not saying that to knock anybody because a lot of people work really hard and do a really good job and they right. care about kids. But I was lucky enough to go on the first rendition of the French formation yep. license with MLS. So we went and spent almost two years going back and forth. And I learned very quickly what I knew and what I didn't know. I mean, that license was a master's degree. And I know what I still have to learn, which is a lot. Um, but most of the people here, they don't want to take the information on for one reason or another. They're scared of it. It's hard. You're, you're an educator in youth soccer. You're not a coach. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people coach 12-year-olds the same way that they would coach 20-year-olds. And it just it doesn't work like that. Child development isn't that way. So to answer your question mm-hmm. on a big thing, I'm very optimistic. There's a lot of really intelligent people and resources going towards that, uh, MLS leading the way. Um, so I think that the future of that is, is really bright for our, our youth. Do you, do you, where do you stand on the college versus the academy system? Because I came through the college system, so I have a soft spot for that. But I also grew up in the Arsenal Academy, and you know, kids were turning pro at 16, 17. Whereas here, you sometimes see a young player, might be 22, 23. He's six or seven years behind his European counterpart. So do you see the NCAA and college soccer still being beneficial, or is it time to kind of switch to academies? Um, I'll say it a different way. Yeah. I the resources, facilities, and opportunity that exist on college campuses are better than a lot of professional clubs I've played in across right. the world, and I've played in a few. Right. Um, if we could find a way to marry the two rather than have to choose between them, mm-hmm. it would be massive. Because the college programs, the University of Washington, where Jamie Clark coaches, yeah. 
that facility is as nice as most pro clubs. If you could find a way to help utilize those together with the academy, you do two things. One, you get the best player and personal development, and kids get an education so that if they have an injury, which you know a little bit about, then you have an opportunity to have something to fall back on. And I, I think it's sad if we would have to choose. I think we can do both. Yeah, that's actually probably something that I really do agree with. And last but not least, probably the question I've been asking everybody who's involved in U.S. soccer at some level, um, missing the World Cup, how big of an effect will that have on future generations? Or will it not really have that much of an effect? Where do you stand on that part? Um, I think every now and then people need to get punched in the face. Yeah. And I'm not saying that literally, but we needed to get punched in the face there's a lot of really incredibly arrogant people that think that they know, yeah. and they just got proven wrong. I mean, I don't. Some people won't say that, but I'm going to say it. You're, mm-hmm. We didn't qualify because we weren't good enough, and we need to be better. And if that means that you got to not qualify for a World Cup to take a step back and go, you know, we need to fix the problem, yeah. then that's what has to happen. And hopefully, enough of the right-minded people get into powerful positions in order to ha- uh, make it happen. I couldn't agree more with that. I think. Um you know, the U.S. obviously has been training upwards, but just even the kids who won't get to see uh, Christian Pulisic or, you know, Clint Dempsey in his last World Cup, and they might be eight, nine, ten years old, and that might turn them onto the sport. You're going to miss out on that um, generation in general. So I pretty much do agree with you there, and I'm glad you said it in the way you said it, because I think more people should say it like that. Um, lastly, nowadays, what are you up to coaching-wise? Um, you know, people want to know what you're doing. Tell us. <laughs> um, so I currently run the Sounders U23 and Sounder Women programs. They're, if you're a kid in the academy at Sounders, you can go to S2 and sign professionally right away, or you can go off to college. Uh, we're the college equivalent. So if you're an amateur player, you come back and play with us in the summer. So we help the Sounders out that way. We run the women's program because women deserve everything that a man does. And yeah. I, we love to run the program. It's been a great program for us. Um, and then our owners also purchased the Tacoma Stars, which is the professional indoor team uh plays in the winter time i mean we're the winter destination for soccer around here we you know we average around three thousand fans a game and we'd love to have more and mm-hmm. there's a lot of sounder connections on our team you know jamal cox yeah you know chase yeah. hansen troy peterson all kids that played here so philip lund yeah and philip yeah. lund he's actually uh i don't want to let the cat out of the bag but i'm gonna anyway uh, <laughs> philip's gonna be a player coach with our sounders u23s this summer to start great you know yeah. transitioning and he's a wonderful guy and, yeah you know, we hope to, to help soccer at all levels. I mean, that's what we're all in it for. Yeah. Quality. Darren, always a pleasure, man. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate it. Big thanks again to Darren Swatsky. Um, always enjoy talking with Darren. He's played in my charity game every year. Um, he's a guy who, you know, kind of played before the emergence of social media and youtube and that kind of stuff so um it's nice for him to get once a year and remind people that um he actually can play he's a good player and obviously a very good coach someone who cares a lot about the sport in this country and i think like many of you feels very strongly about um this nation's failure to be in the world cup it's going to be weird when the summer rolls around and we're not having viewing parties for the US people aren't you know leaving work early to watch the US play that's going to be strange so with that said um, once again thank you to Darren couple more of your questions here here's one there's been so many so if I can't get your question believe me I always always try 
I knew this one would come up and it came from a few of you. And the question essentially is, who should be the soundest starting left back? Well, the battle is between Waylon Francis and Nuhu. And I think the expectation was with Jovin Jones leaving last season that Nuhu would kind of step in and fill in that role. And then the Sounders did what it's supposed to do, went and got some cover, some depth, and brought in Waylon Francis. And he's been good. Waylon's been good. Um, didn't have a great game against Chivas in the second leg, but that game aside, he's been solid enough. And he and Nuhu, they're very different. So it almost at this point comes down to preference at this point because Waylon for me in the final third his delivery is more advanced than Nuhu's he's more likely than not to put a good cross into the box he's more likely than not to whip in the right kind of ball to find the forwards Um, his delivery is just better than Nuhu's at this point 1v1 defending I give it to Nuhu he's very tough to beat 1v1 um, I know he gave away the penalty this weekend, but that's, you know, we're talking, what, 20, 30 games for him now, and you very rarely see that happen. He's off the ball defending, which means looking over his shoulders, tracking runners. That still needs some improvement, but just in terms of pure 1v1, shut someone down. Um, knew who probably is ahead of Waylon Francis at this moment. So it's very tough. Um, it comes down to preference. I think for the coaching staff, what they've done is they've put it out there. Hey, you're in a battle. It's going to be one or the other. And, you know, it's yours to win. It's yours to win. So I think at this moment in time, if I was the coach, I would probably play Waylon Francis. No, I would play Nuhu. You see? That's how hard it is. And I can't decide. One more question here coming in. Um, let's see which one we should do here. There's some pretty good ones. The question here, okay. Nico Lodero, because I know he started centrally this weekend. The question is, when Clint comes back and Nico moves back wide, does that disrupt his influence on the team? Um, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I don't think it disrupts his influence on the team. I think Nico, even when he starts wide right in that kind of 4-2-3-1, he's the right of that three, he still goes everywhere. Nico starts there on paper, but as soon as the referee blows the whistle for kickoff, within a couple of minutes, Nico is all over the pitch. And I've never seen a playmaker move and run so much. Don't know how he does it. So I think Nico's influence is fine. I think the only issue potentially that's always been between him and Clint Dempsey was just you don't want them taking the same spaces but I think in a couple of years of playing with each other they've learned where one likes to go where the other one wants to be they've learned to play with each other and I think towards the end of last season in particular it was coming together pretty well um, where Nico was being Nico and Clint was being Clint which is always a challenge I think you know in the playoff game against Vancouver Whitecaps was a great example the, the second leg here at home was a great example of both of them having tremendous games um, while playing in what would be their best positions for this team so they can definitely work and I'm looking forward to seeing them on the pitch um, together I believe it'll be for the first time this season um, I could be wrong but definitely in uh, um, the first 90 minutes they may play together um, after Clint's extra suspension um, that we won't talk about big three things and I just alluded to it 
the extra game suspension. How could I not address this? Here's the thing. I don't have a problem with the league viewing a video and deciding we deem this worthy of an extra game. That's up to them. Even though I 100% disagree with, with the verdict, I don't think it was a red card in the first place. Um, the VAR video review angles that they would have seen would have shown there was no violent conduct. There was hardly any contact. If there was, it was to free his arm from the player's wrist, from, from the player's grip on his wrist. So, you know, if Clint was wrong, Clint was wrong, but he wasn't. But anyway, the league's looked at that and they've said, you get the red card, the suspension, and we're going to uphold this and actually add another game. They can do that. It should not take 25 days. That's the problem. Um, and then when people get outraged and alarmed, you shouldn't double down, defend it while not really explaining it. And almost blaming Clint for not texting you back, which is strange. We, issues that take place in week one should be resolved before week two emerges. If there are incidents that they review on a Monday after week two, everything should be resolved by week three. So teams know what's going on while they're moving forward. This took place so long ago, I had forgotten about that incident. Clint's been training. I'm looking forward to seeing Clint play um, in Kansas. I'm sure the fans of Sport in Kansas, understanding that, you know, this is one of the great American players at the back end of his career. He's coming to town. How many more chances are we going to get to see him? They're looking forward to it in that sense. The Sounders fans making the trip. And then three days before the game, you announce, oh, we're adding an extra game. And this was 25 days plus since the incident. That's way too long. And I think you owe your fans, your consumers, the viewing public, a very strong explanation why your disciplinary review can take so long. That's my only concern. They can review and suspend whoever they want. We can disagree, but they're the league. We respect it. It's got to be done in a timely manner. It can't be the player never called us back or we were waiting on this. It shouldn't go across two match day weeks and then announce it a couple of days before he's supposed to get on a flight to go and play. That's my only issue with that. And I think most people fall on the side of wanting a little bit more transparency in situations like that. The second thing, home sweet home. It feels good after getting a positive result to have your next game at home because that's how you build momentum. And for the Sounders, it hasn't been home sweet home yet. Lost to LAFC lost to Montreal, but now it's time to make this place a fortress again. Brian Schmetzer has a fantastic home record since taking over, and it's taken a hit early in the season. So he's going to want to get that back because a good performance here at home, a win against Minnesota, does what now? It's four points in two games. It's a few goals in a couple games. It's getting different guys on the score sheet. It's, you know, hopefully there's a, there's a, there's a clean sheet. Um, Stefan Fry has a shout-out, hopefully. But you, you, that's how you start to turn the narrative around. That's how you start to build confidence in the team. That's how guys start to believe, okay, we are a good team. And you don't want to have that somewhat positive result against Sporting and then come home to your third home defeat. That would be a letdown. So I think for the Sounders, 
It's a massive, massive game at home. A chance to always repay these fans who stick by you through thick and thin. No matter what you say on Twitter, I know you stick by the guys. And they want to get out there in front of you this Sunday afternoon and put on a show and start rebuilding the fortress that is CenturyLink Field. Number three is more of a question that I'm asking myself and I'm asking you and we should all think about it. What is Christian Rodin's best position? If you'd asked me six months ago, I would have said in a 4-2-3-1, he must be one of the two holding mids next to Alonso because he has great engine. He can move, he can run, and he can also get back. And he's so strong. I don't know how he's so strong. He's not that big. He wins every 1v1 battle. He's so strong. And he's good on the ball. He's clever. He's quick. He can finish, obviously. But now I'm thinking, is he better a little bit higher up the pitch? Is that Christian's best position? More of a, not a free role, but a free-ish role where go and make runs off the ball, try and get in behind, support the play from deep, kind of freestyle your position. Because that's what he did when Alonso came on. And that's a great, Weapon for Brian Schmetzer and coaching staff to have in their toolbox to know you can free up one of your key players at certain points in the game. He can get you a goal if he gets into space. You just got to create the tactics to get him into that space, which the team did. Is he a six? Is he an eight? Is he a 10? I think he's all three. We've seen him start in number 10 when Nico was injured or suspended or something last year. And he scored two goals against San Jose. Um, he went higher up this weekend and he scored. He had a goal away to NYCFC last season he can put the ball in the back of the net and maybe playing him as a holding mid takes that away from his game so you want to play him higher but then when you play him higher you take away his 1v1 battling and defending so it's a tough one but it's a fantastic problem to have so I ask you what is Christian Rodin's best position because I don't know I'm just glad he's on the pitch because right now, when he's on there, you just feel something good is going to happen. And that's all I have time for this week. Looking forward to a great game this Sunday against Minnesota United coming to town. I do expect three points. I know there's no easy games. I know it's going to be tough. But after what I saw this team do with their backs against the wall in adversity, in Kansas City, a game we probably a lot of us expected zero points and it should have been three. I feel good about coming home to this kind of game. This has been Winging It with Zakwani. I am Steve Zakwani. We'll be back next week, hopefully recapping a Sounders victory.